Good afternoon, Dr. Danguera, Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. And today is the uh, 17th of May, 2021. Just yesterday, I had introduced a discussion of a neurosteroid. So let's uh, get right into that. So there's an endogenous neurosteroid, and I'll give you its name again. It's 3-alpha-5-alpha-3-hydroxy-pregnan-20-ohm, also known as 3-alpha-5-alpha-THP, and also known as allopregnanolone. And paper published in Scientific Reports a couple of years ago suggested that this neurosteroid has protective activity in animal models of various CNS-associated diseases, including alcoholism, depression, uh, TBIs, schizophrenia, MS, and yes, the topic that we were mostly emphasizing, AD, Alzheimer's. Now, the research team employed monocytes and macrophages in this paper. They used the raw 264.7 cells, and they're using, of course, as a model for peripheral immune signaling. And what they wanted to do is determine innately activated TLR4 in the ventral tegmental area, the VTA, a selectively bred alcohol-addicted um, rats. So this is an animal study. I know that I really tried to avoid animal research, uh, rodent research, or even primate research, and stick with human. But for purposes of bringing you from the literature that came back some 15 years ago up to the present regarding potentiating effects of the immune system and the CNS as associated with Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, and prefrontal dementia, um, I feel compelled to go into the animal literature because there's a lot that could be uh, gleaned from it that is not necessarily directly extrapolatable to human um, diseases like Alzheimer's, but which mechanistically can give us some insight. So that's my caveat, of course. So here they took LPS activating the TLR4 pathway in these um, monocyte macrophage cell lines. And they saw increased levels of a phosphorylated TAC1, TRAF6, NF-kappa B, P50, uh, and, of course, the phospho-NF-kappa B, P65 dimer. They also found phospho-CREB and an increase in the high-mobility group protein HMG-B1. They also determined, after... Uh, LPS activation, increases in several, of course, uh, inflammatory mediators, including MCP1 and, yes, TNF-alpha. Now, <clears throat> what they determined is both the THP, that's the neurosteroid, and then the non-neurosteroid, pregnenolone, at 0.5 to about 1 micron, substantially, at a level of 80%, actually increased, excuse me, inhibited um, the normal effects that you get that, uh, that, that look like, that, that are the model for immune signaling uh, 
in TLRVTA. Okay, so it looked like both this uh, unusual neurosteroid, the, th the THP, and then the uh, circulating pregnenolone both inhibited those effects on TLR4, right? So that it indicated to them they see a pronounced inhibition, of course, of what? TLR4 signaling, because they got all those mediators to uh, shut down all that phosphorylation cascade I just mentioned to you. And in fact, the mechanism of inhibition appeared to be a blockade of the TLR4 MD2 protein interactions. Now, in the VTA, the THP at a dose of about 15 milligram per kilogram IP administration reduced the TRAF6, CRF, and MCP1 levels at about 20%. Uh, also, TLR4 binding to the GABA-A receptor, alpha subunits, by a whopping 60%, and the mid-D88 at about 40%. And what that data suggested to them was that the inhibition of this pro-inflammatory neuroimmune signaling probably underlies the protective effects of that neurosteroid, the THP, recall, at least in immune cells and probably in the central nervous system. And they think it's because it involves a blocking of protein-protein interactions probably because of alterations of phosphorylation substrate levels. And, and that interaction would, of course, uh, duly initiate, when it's functioning correctly, TLR4 uh, signaling. So what the, this paper suggested was that the inhibition of pro-inflammatory TOLIC receptor 4 activation might be a new mechanism for this 3-alpha-5-alpha-THP action in the periphery and in the brain. Remember, because they were using this macrophages and they were also looking at the CNS of this rat model. Okay, so that's an interesting thing because it, again, it links <clears throat> the anti-inflammatory steroidogenesis pathways, which we know is active in stressed brain because of the CRH component that I talked about oh, several lectures ago. Uh, and it links that, but also it associates with macrophage and microglial activation, which are key components too, as we've been arguing, one in the CNS and one in the peripheral, um, for age-related neurodegeneration. Okay. So... Now, a paper published back in 2005, don't worry, I'll put it in the show notes, tells us the following. And this is now, this is the animal model, so bear with me. <clears throat> An acute immobilization stress activates the norepinephrine release in a number of limbic forebrain target regions. And these include the central and medial amygdala, the lateral bed nucleus, and the stria terminalis, as well as the medial prefrontal cortex and the lateral septum. <clears throat> now, that, that stress-induced release <clears throat> of norepinephrine and all those nuclei facilitated a number of anxiety-like behavioral responses that, of course, are mediated from those regions, according to uh, neuroanatomical studies in the rodent model. 
And those include stress-induced reduction of open arm exploration on what's called the elevated plus maze test and stress-induced reduction of social interaction behavior plus or also the activation of a defensive burying behavior by contact with an electrified uh, probe. So what this paper says is dysregulation of the brain any system that's the noradrenergic system, could be a factor in determining vulnerability in stress-related pathologies and maybe in the interaction of genetic vulnerability with environmental sensitization. So they compared an outbred Sprague Dolly rat um, and the modulatory effects of NE in the Wistar Kyoto rats, where NE signaling is deficient. And they also exhibited attenuated behavioral reactivity to acute stress, as well as an increased vulnerability to stress-induced gastric ulcers and an exaggerated activation of the HPA stress axis, that's the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. So repeated exposure in this study back in 2006, to mild intermittent cold stress resulted in a much greater sensitization of both the CNS and noradrenergic pathways linked to the HBA axis in the Wistar Kyoto rats as compared to the, the Sprague Dolly rats. Remember that the Wistar Coyote, they have a deficiency in the NE pathway. This is, this is why animal models can be useful because you can actually blockade entire pathways. So uh, continuing, the recruitment of a robust noradrenergic facilitatory influence following repeated cold exposure, which is their stress in this study, resulted in an aberrant HPA axis response. Now that may be illustrative of the kinds of neurobiochemical changes that contribute to the development of stress-related neuropsychiatric disorders. And of these, they are suggesting things like major depressive disorder and maybe post-traumatic stress disorder. So continuing alterations in the noradrenergic neurotransmission pathway or in the stress modulatory functions of NE, therefore, may be important in the behavioral effects of chronic antidepressant drug treatment. So they argue that a better understanding of the role of norepinephrine in adaptive responses to acute stress should be rolled into future treatment ideas for, for, for humans uh, suffering from major depressive disorders and uh, PTSD, okay? So that's how these papers were used back in the early 2000s. <clears throat> now, another paper published in the Bulletin of Experimental Biology, uh, again, back in the early 2000s, it was in mice, and it tells us the following. Mice of different strains, just like we used two different rat strains a minute ago, can be classified by the intensity of humoral immune reaction to thymus-dependent antigens at high, moderate, and low responder animals. 
The high and moderate responders, I won't give you the details of their genetic background, but the high and moderate responders were characterized by a high sensitivity of the productive phase of the humoral immune response and indeed the phagocytic activity of macrophages all linked to an immobilization stress. This is a, again, an emotional stress, right? So in low responders, so mice that are normally low responders to the stress, stress only slightly affected the productive phase of the humoral immune response, but the activity of the peritoneal macrophages, which is the actual readout, actually decreased in these low responders. So they argue that the differences in the reactions of the immune system of the highly inbred mice after mobilization stress actually reflects a different reaction of the immune system to environmental negative stimuli. Okay, so this is linking now the environment, the immune system, and then neuropsychiatric states in an animal model. Okay, so that's where we want to go because we're discussing this. We're going to extrapolate this to humans. Now, another paper published in Pharmacological Reports, uh, I guess in 2005, uh, also gives some interesting clues here. So they looked at the effects of orally administered lactoferrin on both cellular humoral immune responses, again in mice, and again, mice subjected to immobilization stress. And what they found was that long-term immobilization stress induced significant suppression of both cellular and humoral immune responses in the mice. And the suppression was attenuated by lactoferrin. Uh, given to the mice sad the vitamin drinking water. And that was determined by looking at the number of antibody forming cells in the spleen and the magnitude of what's called the delayed type of hypersensitivity or DTH. Now, on the other hand, lactoferrin lowered the elevated DTH response in mice exposed to short-term immobilization stress. On the day of elicitation of the delayed type hypersensitivity response or reaction. So they showed that the lactoferrin upregulated the spontaneous transforming growth factor beta, uh, spontaneous uh, expression of it, now TGF beta, okay, in cultures of mesenteric lymph node cells derived from that short-term stress mouse um, cohort. And this was actually the first paper I could find that talks about the regulatory effect of lactoferrin on the immune response. Of course, lactoferrin is going to be associated with iron metabolism and iron transport. So the effect of lactoferrin on the immune response modified by this, they call it a psychological stress, and what they said back in 2005 is, is all this is consistent that anti-nociceptive and analgesic actions of lactoferrin can be linked to this potential immune response. Now, these are, again, the original papers that I'm going to bring you forward on here very soon. One more paper from the ancient uh, literature, ancient, 2006, uh, published in Brain Research Bulletin tells you the following. 
they were observing pain behaviors induced by formalin injection subcutaneously into the hind paw. Or besides formalin, they also used substance P, glutamate, and a few pro-inflammatory cytokines, TNF-alpha, IL-1-beta, and interferon gamma. Now, they injected these intrathecally in the mouse immobilization stress model. The mouse was restrained either once for an hour or five times for five days, once per day. I know this sounds very stressful, but this is how these experiments were done. Now, in the formalin test, a single immobilization stress attenuated pain behaviors. And in this model, the pain behaviors are licking, biting, scratching. Uh, excessive licking, biting, scratching. And all of that in the second phase, that's the phase that was attenuated. But it had no effect, this formula test, on pain behaviors revealed during the first phase. So that means there was a pause. And they also found that repeated immobilization stress attenuated pain behavior. Uh, and they saw this only in the second phase and not in the first phase. Okay, so that's follows the logically the experiment experimental results. So they say a single as well as repeated immobilization stress decreased pain behaviors that were induced by substance P uh, injected IT. But there was absolutely no significant changes when they used glutamate. Okay? So they're playing around with different neurotransmitters and they're doing a readout in behaviors linked to pro-inflammatory cytokine injection into specific um, known sites in the mouse, intrathecally, into the hind paw, that's going to trigger a pain response. So they're linking together now the immune response, neurotransmission, and neurotransmitter behavior linked to a stress phenomenon, this immobilization, ultimately showing that there is differential behavior of different neurotransmitters. So basically, they're linking the immune response to neurotransmitter isoform okay, in the mouse model. So again, this is all background information. So the pro-inflammatory cytokine pain model with a single immobilization stress decreased the pain behaviors induced by TNF-alpha and interleukin-1-beta administered IT, but had no effect on the interferon gamma administered the same way, equally. So a mouse applied with repeated immobilization stress didn't show any changes in pain behaviors elicited with pro-inflammatory cytokines, TNF-alpha, IL-1-beta, or interferon gamma compared to the control group. So they, are, they said back then the results suggested that a single repeated immobilization stress differentially affects the nociceptive processing induced by things such as formalin and substance P, glutamate, and those pro-inflammatory cytokines. And all of that in differential alterations of the response. So the study suggested that behavioral modification can be attenuated by exposure. This is, this is my summary of this, by exposure to specific classes of pro-inflammatory cytokines. So cytokines are affecting behavior.
okay, which means they're working in the CNS. That's why these papers are critical and interesting. Uh, now, uh, I said that was the last one. One more really important paper comes out of the Journal of Endotoxin Research. It looked at interferon, and, it, and of course, interferon is known to, uh, to be critical in antiviral signaling. And it also was involved, interferon, in other immunomodulatory actions. So an in vitro study using interferon gamma also had been shown, even back in the early uh, 2000s, to be involved in the control of metallothionin expression. So metallothionin, what that is, is a low molecular mass protein, and it, there's several isoforms of it, at least five different forms. And uh, MT1 and 2 are widely expressed by MT3 and 4 are tissue-specific, and MT5 at the time of the publication of this paper, it was unknown where it was um, highly expressed, or if it was highly expressed at all. So the paper reported on the in vivo role of interferon gamma on a normal liver and brain metallothion in response to immobilization stress and to an inflammatory process readout caused, again, now they're using bacterial LPS, which, of course, is endotoxin. Um, and they used mice carrying a null mutation in the interferon receptor. Okay, so interferon's being used, but there's no re reception for it. So what they found is that the liver, methylothionin 1 message, and methylothionin 1 and 2 protein levels during stress of the uh, interferon receptor minus mice was similar to those of two parental mouse strains that were used to generate them. And so that says that, and these are just F1, these, these uh, ones that were lacking the receptor. So in contrast to the liver metallothionin response to LPS, um, it was uh, you see a significantly higher interferon uh, receptor minus mouse than in other strains. So you get a metallothionin response in liver to LPS activation, even in the interferon receptor mouse. So what does that say? Metallothionin 1 and 2 response to LPS was higher in the interferon receptor mouse in the medulla plus the pons and tended to also be the same in the hypothalamus, hippocampus, cerebellum, but not in any other fractions of brain nuclei. So it looks like the cytokine exerts a very specific inhibitory effect on the signaling pathways activated by LPS that are associated with metallothionin regulation. Now, you're going to find out why metallothionin is important here in a moment. Now, in situ hybridization analysis of the MT1 and MT3 transcripts of control mice reveal significant effects of the functional interferon deficiency. It's a functional interferon deficiency because there's no reception on the metallothionin-1, uh, but not on three transcript levels. This was in the dentate gyrus and the habanula, but there were no effects observed in the remaining CNS nuclei. So a very specific association with or without this interferon reception. That's the point I'm making here, okay? Very interesting, right? So what are the concepts? 
The paper suggests that interferon directly uh, alters metallothionine expression upon LPS challenge, but only in specific regions of the CNS in the animal model. So metallothionines have the capacity to bind both physiological, such as zinc, copper, selenium, and xenobiotic, such as cadmium, mercury, silver, and even arsenic, uh, heavy metal ions. And they do that through the thiol group of its cysteine residues. So this could well be associated then with the toxicity of metals known to induce uh, either um, cancer, such as those xenobiotic, like cadmium, mercury, um, and reactive oxygen, such as copper. Okay. So it appears that metallothionine removes metals and therefore decreases certain brain dysfunctions. We know that copper is, of course, a very powerful oxidant in the cell, and it can cause inflammation, and of course, it can induce free radical production. And to avoid those toxic effects, it has to be bound to binding proteins. So normally it's bound to ceruloplasmin, but also to metallothionine. Now, those proteins can become deficient due to impaired, wait for it, adrenal and hepatic function, which would allow free copper to build up. It can therefore have a toxic effect similar to other metals on the body and in the central nervous system and could be a contributor to many chronic illnesses and even neuropsychiatric diseases. That is the background there with that paper, okay? So I'm gonna leave you with this really, uh, I'm gonna, the beginning of this. A paper published now in 2017, scientific reports says the following. Alzheimer's disease, of course, is a major cause of dementia. Dementia is characterized by you know, losing memory, language, problem solving, and cognition. The pathology is normally described as amyloid A-beta uh, dep deposition, right? Uh, around neurons, you get also hyperphosphorylated tau, oxidative stress, dyshomeostasis of biometals, and you can also get chronic neural inflammation, and because of that, neurodegeneration via apoptosis or ferrotosis. You also get low levels of acetylcholine, okay? Um, all right, now, metal ion homeostasis in AD, which is, of course, indicated by high concentrations of copper, zinc, and iron, which you find in A-beta plaques, um, suggests that there's a dysregulation of transition metals in the pathogenesis of AD. <clears throat> in fact, increasing evidence suggests that zinc and copper interact with A-beta peptides and could influence their fibrillization, and therefore neurotoxicity. So copper ions become entrapped in A-beta fibrils, and they, of course, are going to be electrochemically active, and they will generate reactive oxygen, which consequently will cause an oxidative stress and neurotoxicity. However, zinc is a redox inert metal ion. It plays a protective role in AD by suppressing the copper-dependent hydrogen peroxide formation from the A-beta protein. So the homeostasis of transition metals in the brain could be closely linked to the development of AD. Now, that's the point I want to uh, sort of leave you with, right? Because we, we led up to this. So next time, I'm going to go into more detail about metallothionine.
<clears throat> and revealed to you some very interesting characteristics of uh, zinc versus copper ions bound into the oligomers. So I'm going to leave you with that now uh, and uh, encourage you uh, absolutely, I haven't done this in a long time, to subscribe to Authentic Biochemistry and to leave comments uh, so that I can read them and I will present some of those um, on air. And uh, I also am asking once again for donations for the podcast, which you can do through PayPal and directly to the website. So this is Dr. Dan Guerra on the 17th of May on a windy, very blustery, hot, early summer or very late spring. Actually, it's the full month till, till summer, so mid-spring day. Um, not that this is a weather report, but it's what I see outside my window. So um, bye for now.